This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. When you travel through the English countryside, thanks to King Henry VIII's decision in the middle of the 16th century to break from Rome and to dissolve the country's monasteries, you'll find the ruins of around 200 abbeys and monastic orders. These are places packed with stories and with history, but today I'm visiting one that surely has to be the most romantic. And to boot, I'm told that it hides a rather extraordinary secret. In fact, Fountains Abbey in the Skell Valley in Yorkshire is so inspiring. Artists like Turner have been moved to immortalise it in painting, and it's even appeared in a couple of Hollywood horror movies. But this place isn't just gorgeous. It's not just interesting. It's truly significant. Because Fountains Abbey gives us a window onto the vital world of the Cistercian Order of Monks, who lived here for just over four centuries and whose influence has had a profound impact on European culture and commerce and indeed on all our lives today. The Cistercian monastic movement originated in France in the 11th century when a group of Benedictine monks attempted to return to simplicity in their lives and their liturgies. With its reputation for simple living and rigorous discipline, the Cistercian movement soon grew and sent out colonising offshoots to England. In December 1132, Archbishop Thurston of York brought 13 monks to the valley of the River Skell, west of Ripon, where he gave them land to establish a monastery. The location was remote, chosen specifically to expose the monks to the spiritual and physical demands of life in the wilderness. As their mentor, Bernard of Clairvaux, wrote, You will find in the woods something you will never find in the books. Stones and trees will teach you a lesson you never heard from the masters in schools. This small band of monks, pioneers in frontier settlement, had little notion of what they were starting. Yet from this unpromising beginning grew the great Cistercian Abbey of Fountains. I'm walking past a very handsome sandstone building which reaches well over 30 feet high. It's framed with cow parsley and thistles and I can even see harebells growing in the corner. Very beautiful. Interesting, it doesn't all look 12th century to me, but luckily here's Mark Newman. Hello, Mark. Bethany. Bethany, how lovely to meet you. Welcome to Fountains. Thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Now, you're one of the National Trust's archaeologists, so hopefully you can help me decode all these structures. Is it 12th century, this? Well, the stonework closest to us here at ground level, yes, that's 12th century. But as the monastic community grew and it needed more granary space, the building shot upwards to give us this massive structure that you see here now that would have been one of the largest mills in England in its day. So it is a mill because it didn't look ecclesiastical to me. How long did it function as a mill? Well the earliest stonework was put up here in 1138 which makes it the oldest surviving building on the site and it continued in production grinding grain, preparing grains for brewing right up until 1927 so best part of 800 years. Wow. 
very significant that there's a mill right at the heart of this community, isn't it? It is. It was always one of the main points of a Cistercian community, but it was self-supporting in as many ways as possible. And your daily bread and your beer was central to life. You couldn't have had a community here without it. I mean, do you think there's anything in the fact that these men have come from the continent or they've got very continental connections and of course in France at this time you'd have had those really massive ancient Roman mill structures like Barbagall. Do they draw on that technology? They very definitely do I and mean, it's one of the great things that the Cistercians have got behind them and why they pick up so quickly is that they're an international organisation. Now this is a community that can talk with people from across Europe because they share a language in common Latin that is not part of the outside experience. They've got the best medicine the best opportunities to live here some of these people are living into their 70s when an average expectation is 30 outside the monastery's walls. Now, this is quite a science fiction community for a contemporary audience, and it would seem just as strange to us. The Cistercian movement was the first truly pan-European movement, and the Cistercian monks' day-to-day life was the same right across Europe, whether they were in Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, France, Poland or England. We're standing with our back to the Porter's Lodge. So this was the entry point, presumably, to the complex. In the 12th century, would I have been allowed in as a woman? Whether you'd been excluded as a woman rather depended on your status in life. Now, I'm sure an important visitor like you <laughs> would have been welcomed in. If, on the other hand, you're hoi polloi, then there's actually a further gate out beyond this one that would have kind of filtered you out. OK, so imagine I was of a sufficiently high status and I had been allowed in. Had I walked in here in the middle of the 12th century, what would I have seen in front of me? A hive of activity. The bank over to the south covered in industrial buildings, producing the materials that the Abbey needs. Here in the cloistral complex itself, people coming and going. The cycle of prayer and religious services during the course of the day, the seven main services, so people coming and departing from those activities. And where you see the manicured lawn... There actually was an enormous building, the size of the church itself, which we think was a third major guest house. And that's one of the clues to the internationalism and visitors coming to this place that we get, because a guest hall on that size could probably have accommodated about 500 people. So huge numbers of people were expecting to be coming and going from this place. Tranquility, yep, at times, but at other times, as busy and vibrant a place as you'd find. Mm. I know that we're not supposed to be seduced by the romance of ruins, but I just have to have a moment here. This is so beautiful. So either end of this roofless nave, you've got these huge arched windows framing a beaming sky and trees. I mean, it's surreally beautiful. It's like some kind of wonderful... 3D painting, isn't it? It is. And as archaeologists and as historians, you put people back into this and you put busyness. But to have the opportunity to breathe and just to be awe-inspired by the beauty and the tranquility of this. Some people say that there are some places where there's a very thin wall between worlds and it's feeling pretty thin right now. We've walked within the church now. All that's around me is this rather beautiful sort of soft 
pink sandstone, but what would it have been in its heyday? It was a series of different things through the life of the monastery. And when it's first erected in this end of the church, the nave, it's the part that survives from furthest back. It would have had mainly plastered walls, white austere walls, and then little touches of detailing to set it off. So you have these streaks of dark against the wonderful lightness and purity of the majority of the colouring of the building because it has been described as employing an architecture of light, hasn't it? And this is this connectivity between the Cistercians and the natural qualities of place, that their architecture was seen to enhance those qualities and to sit harmoniously within it, as a, a synonym for God's majesty in the running of the world. It is a splendid space. Who would have been inhabiting it physically? Who would have been in here? The church anticipates two key communities who are the structure of the monastery from the time it really gets established. So you would have had a smaller community of choir monks whose principal role in the abbey is prayer and driving the services that are kind of factory for devotion to God. They have a different daily routine from the other principal community who are lay brethren. Now they're also sworn members of the monastic community but they take a different set of vows and the mainstream of their day is doing the day-to-day -day work that keeps the abbey running. A rich life though. A rich life indeed. By the mid-1200s, this well-organised system of lay brethren working alongside the choir monks enabled Fountain's Abbey to become one of the richest and most powerful religious houses in the country, with the sale of wool as the main source of its wealth. This entrepreneurial enterprise helped to kickstart a market economy in England. Right, now we're going into the west side of the cloistral complex and I'm sure you'll agree this is one of the most stunning spaces on a pretty stunning site. This is remarkable. So you've got this beautiful vaulted space. You suddenly realise actually I'm not surprised that this was used to make Hollywood horror films because <laughs> it's kind of pretty much everything that you'd expect. It's full from on a, gothic, it, isn't it? It really? is full on gothic. So what was the original purpose of this? So this was originally laid out as the refectory for the lay brethren. I think we're anything up to 400 lay brethren here. Then the Black Death happens. The Abbey doesn't really have labour within anymore. So instead this space is made use of as the storage space for the Abbey's products. So coming in here later in the Abbey's history, you would have found it piled high with barrels of beer, with metal, with cloth waiting to go out for sale right across Europe as far as the Italian wool market. This is a storehouse. It is clearly such a substantial enterprise. How does all this impact on the local community? Well, what it introduces is the idea of a market economy on an enormous scale. The Cistercians broke entirely new ground in the scale of their industry, and especially in the scale and the sophistication of their agriculture. They are producing agricultural product for sale, originally wool, later dairy products. No one's producing things in quantity before. So this place was a real driver of large-scale activity. It really was. I mean, its focus is prayer, but part of that greater glorifying of God was working with industry and with economics on a scale that had never been seen before. This really was a magnificent enterprise.
what dominates the landscape here is this enormous tower. I mean, I think it's 167 feet tall, mm -hmm. isn't it? Hubie's Tower. It's a very confident structure. It thrusts up into the sky. But in a way, this is really the beginning of the end. It is. I mean, it certainly gives the lie to any suggestion that Fountains was a monastery that was failing. It also, you know, represents a degree of change in how the Cistercians view the world, that softening of the early ideals. Cistercians at the outset said, we don't do bells, they're a sign of vanity. This tower was to hang a magnificent set of ten great bells which would have competed with any cathedral in England. But they're only here for a few decades before the end comes. And this is one of the places where our evidence is an absence rather than a presence. So the fact there is no roof on the tower, the fact there is no glass in the windows. Yeah, it is that. The strongest physical evidence for the dissolution is everything that we are missing now that a spectator in the reign of Henry VIII would have seen on the day before the dissolution. So Mark, how did the end finally come here? Well, the end came here in this spot, in the chapter house on the east side of the cloisteral complex in November 1539. So it was the monastic community putting their signatures to a document saying all that the monastery was and all that it owned now belongs to the king. And it passed into private hands, and of course the estate remained in private hands from 1540 right up to 1967. And then the trust came here in 1983. But as we stand here with pigeons flying around in the chapter house and weeds growing in the stones, how do you feel about that moment? You know, the stories that abbeys were in decline just really isn't true for fountains and one wonders what different future the place might have had if it had continued. And we should also spare a moment to think about those monks who came here with honest purpose, men who did just want to live the best lives they thought they could possibly live. Yes, they were godly men who came here for their faith and delivered a great deal for the church in all its different manifestations. This is such a great building, not just because of the intensity of its medieval history, but thanks to the afterlife of the estate beyond Henry VIII's self-serving dissolution. In the 18th century, the ruins of Fountains Abbey became a folly to the Studley Royal Estate, when in 1767, the land was sold to William Aislaby, and the whole area was landscaped to frame the abbey as a kind of broken ornament. The result inspired romantic artists like Turner, who first painted the famous view in a kind of whispering style, gently framed by foliage and water. So at a stroke, the most ambitious garden scheme in the north of England was united with the most decorative of ruins, an aesthetic that would have an influence on garden design right across Europe. Here with me to discuss the changing nature of the estate is Michael Ridsdale, who's Head of Landscape at Fountains Abbey and Studley Royal. Now, Michael, what an incredible opportunity for the designers here to have Fountains Abbey as this kind of extraordinary folly at the end of their garden. Yeah, I think one of the terms that the people use with this is consulting the genius of the place. And that's what the 18th century garden makers used to do. They used to look to the site to see what it offered them. 
because this does feel so different from the savage gothic splendour of the abbey behind. I mean, what I'm looking at now is a very expansive water feature. You can probably hear it. There's a little waterfall. There are these Greco-Roman temples dotted around, another fully up on the hill. It's a very, very different feel. In a way, it couldn't contrast more to that raw spirituality of the abbey. How are you actually going to work with presenting the Abbey? How do you think that's best going to fit as part of the scheme here? It's quite a hard-edged approach at the moment. Very formal lawns, uh, right up to the base of the foundations. And we now have a site that has no resemblance whatsoever to what it was like in the 18th century. But what we're trying to do is just soften that a little, allowing the grass to grow softer around the edges, allow wildflowers to grow on the ruins a bit more than what we have at the moment and that natural colonisation has been removed for the necessary consolidation of the abbey by the masons what we're trying to do now is return that softening a little sounds heavenly I've just got to ask you one thing there's this rather lovely phrase around the time of Cistercians that Thomas Aquinas comes out with and he says that work is peace would you agree with that? Yeah, I think for us who look after this site, it's what we call honest toil. And I always tell my team here that we're in a really treasured position at the moment where we're affecting what we're going to see in the future for future generations and we must never forget that. And I think the team here now really grasp that and they go home feeling that they made a worthwhile contribution to the future. Well, all power to you. Honest toil for the benefit of as many people as possible. That sounds pretty good to me. Thank you. I found Mark again at the east end of the Abbey and we're standing on what feels like a picture-perfect green expanse of lawn. Nothing to see here, but you're hinting that there's something else going on. There's something pretty exciting that we've put our finger on here. The green lawn is exactly what William Aseby wanted when he incorporated the abbey into his gardens, a sweep up to the majesty of the ruins. But all that, kind of seeing it as a sculptural object, has almost blinded us to the archaeological potentials of the site, and it's that that we're getting really excited about here. And you're clutching a tablet in your hand, which tells me you're about to show me something that you found. We are pretty excited about these pictures. We knew that this is the Monk's Cemetery. You know, that's where you would expect the Monk's Cemetery to be in every abbey. But what we found with our friends from Bradford University and Marla, who make the world's best ground-penetrating radar equipment, and they've come and done a battery of the most exciting, new and innovative geophysical survey techniques that archaeological science has yet come up with and the one that really paid off for us was this amazing plot of the monks graves and what you can see is somewhere in the region of 500 little oblongs which are the grave cuts you have someone buried at the bottom of the grave cut they put slabs alongside it a slab over the top and then the next burial could go in on top of that up to four deep Who are they that are being buried? Well there's a total of anything up to around 2,000 burials represented here as many monks and lay brothers as there ever were on this site. And I think that's signposting to us that as well as monks and lay brothers, there could be lay patrons, people who are not members of a monastic order, who've given money to the monastery and then get to be buried somewhere very sacred. And what for me this brings into really sharp focus is those people are still here. Their physical remains are here. Can you tell anything about their spiritual beliefs? 
that's one of the most exciting aspects about this evidence, that the graves are laid out in such a regular way that what it's suggesting to us is the monastic community here have decided to adopt the idea of literal resurrection. The idea is that on the day of final judgment you'll rise from your grave and if someone's come along and cut your leg off as you lay in the ground then you'll hop your way through the rest of eternity. It wasn't an idea that was taken up by every medieval community and we see things like bone houses at cathedrals that show it doesn't matter if you disturb the graves but here at Fountains they've taken that particular belief path and that's just fantastic. I don't know of another discovery of this nature. It's rather brilliant isn't it because the Cistercians themselves were great innovators. They were very keen on technology and you're now using the latest technology to tell the fullness of their lives. Well I think if they got past the intrusion on their privacy they'd certainly approve of us using all the newest methods. May they rest in peace. Fountains Abbey reminds us of the dynamic nature of the past. This extraordinary place was retrieved from nature by the monks whose very simplicity meant that they had to innovate, leading to developments in agriculture and industry and commerce right across Europe. We might not realise it, but the entrepreneurial efforts of these pan-European monastics have impacted on many of our own lives. And there's this really interesting fact that counties that hosted Cistercian orders consistently did better economically than their neighbours, right down to the Victorian age. English prosperity certainly owes a great deal to the continental Cistercians. And so it seems fitting that cutting-edge technology is now revealing a new side to the lives and to the afterlives of these inspiring medieval innovators. For more information about Fountains Abbey, including opening dates and times, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Fountains Abbey and Studley Royal Water Garden. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's 10 Places, Europe and Us on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. If you subscribe... We'll even give you a few extra programmes throughout the month too. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast. And in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead or any other National Trust garden, say hello as you wander our estates.